0: Welcome to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address, entitled, Preparing to Make a Difference, was given on November 24th of 1981 by Elaine H. Cannon, then President of the Young Women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is a wonderful week to be together with so many things going on, the temple dedication, the groundbreaking of uh, your new stadium facility, the victory that you all have enjoyed uh, so warmly. I noted that it was not uh, clearly emphasized that I was a graduate of the University of Utah, probably, <laughs> so that uh, there wouldn't be tears in our behalf. But I am a, a very, very proud uh, member of the Church of what goes on here on this campus and of the things that we hear about you as we go out in the world. and. Uh, meet people who have been guests on this campus, are impressed with how you look, how you behave, and how you handle your football games. (laughs) Following the game Saturday, two of the players were overheard talking. It's hard to be humble when spirits are still so high, but I've always felt that humility is uh, still a a God given virtue and necessary probably for the celestial kingdom. But this particular couple of men one a Utah man, won a BYU star, were discussing uh, the outcome of the game. And the BYU man boastfully said, Why, well, of course, we won. My ancestors are traced back to William the Conqueror. And the Utah man, Properly put in his place, but still hopeful, said scoffingly, I hope you aren't going to tell me next that uh, your family were with Noah on the ark. And the BYU man said, certainly not. My people have their own boat. (laughs) Well, I appreciate your laughing at the little jest. It it was a tough thing to sit uh, among your... Uh, rooters and uh, have to keep reminding my husband who had been student body officer and class officer and so on at the University of Utah back in the olden days, now, honey, rise and shine, now, (laughs) and we'd get him up to shout for the right team. I have it in my heart today to talk to you about the season that we're in, Thanksgiving, and um, the... Forthcoming season of Christmas, I want you to know that the things that couldn't be said about me and the kind introduction that President Holland gave you in the beginning and uh, to me to you is that about my testimony of the gospel, my great love of the Lord, the witness that I have through this spirit, that the work that we're engaged in is the work of the Lord and is very important. And one of the wonderful things about special church service as it comes to us when a mantle falls and hands are placed upon our head and we're set apart from the world for a time, one of the wonderful things that I must say to you before I say anything else that you'll know from whence I come today as I try to share some things that I hope will be helpful to you. One of the wonderful things is the ever-recurring support from the Spirit and the awareness that the Lord Jesus Christ is at the head of this Church and that he cares about every one of us and what we're doing to help his children. I want, then, to talk about my gratitude and what ought to be your gratitude at this season of Thanksgiving. I have an emphasis that I hope that will come out of the things that I say, and that is that I feel, having been given so much, we need to go forth and, and do great things—that's a commandment to us—but that it's very important that we be prepared instruments. President Holland mentioned that I was involved with uh, church publications getting the Youth Magazine set up and edited over the period of some long years actually. And one of the things that we published in this little magazine was a, a fine essay called Bind On Thy Sandals. It was written by a brilliant young graduate student. It had to do with the bench warmer who had just taken off his cleats, thinking for him the game did never get underway and it certainly was over, when the coach called him into play. And that's a terrible dilemma. And the essay in developing this situation likened that to our own situation of being prepared to answer the call from God in behalf of his work. It happened that the author of that article is now the president of your institution. You remember writing that little piece? Uh, I think it ought to be required reading at Brigham Young University. It has great, great merit still. And if I didn't think that the the time was terribly short and perhaps you may have heard it every season as you welcome the freshmen. It is required, Jeff has said it's required. Then I would read it to you. But we're meeting here in an academic setting, and I want to take a minute to encourage you that with all of your wisdom, with all of your preparations, with all of the marvelous excitement that is churning within you about the new things that you're being exposed to, I would hope that everyone here would become somewhat interested in, if not addicted to, fine literature. I really... I can't tell you how much it means to me in my life, and strongly recommend it. And if you could find occasion to read aloud to each other the literature of the holy books and the literature that has come to us down through the history of mankind from, from great thinkers and writers, uh, you'll find your enjoyment enhanced uh, with each other as you share these things out loud. I want to read something to you in keeping with uh, my theme today of gratitude and being prepared to go forth to make a difference in the world. Some of you may be familiar with Eudora Weldy's charming, charming short story, A Worn Path. Oh, it would be great Christmas reading in the family setting. But let me just read excerpts from it. I can't, of course, give it all to you. But it begins this way. It was December, a bright, frozen day in the early morning, and far out in the country there was an old woman with her head tied in a red rag coming along a path through the pine woods. Her name was Phoenix Jackson, She was very old and very small, and she walked slowly through the dark of the pine woods, moving a little from side to side in her steps with the balanced heaviness and lightness of a pendulum and an old grandfather clock. She carried a thin, small cane made from an umbrella, and with this she kept tapping the frozen earth in front of her. This made a kind of grave and persistent noise in the still air that Seemed meditative, like the chirping of a solitary bird. Now and then there was a quivering in the thicket. Old Phoenix said, Out of my way, all you foxes, owls, beetles, jackrabbits, coons, and wild animals. Keep out from under these old feet, little Bob Whites. Keep the big wild hogs out of my path. Don't let none of those running my direction. I got a long way to go. The story continues. The adventures unfold in most pleasing and picturesque language. She goes up hard hills, and her aged feet feel like they're bound in chains, down through the oaks, past the little bushes that her old eyes thought to be green, but were instead thorny and brambled and worrisome as she caught her skirt that must not be torn. And then she climbed over barbed wire, past big dead trees that look like black men with one arm standing in a field of purple stalks of the withered corn and cotton. And through pathless cornfields then shaking the dry husks to whirl around her skirts past snake pits, bullpens, alligator ponds, and scarecrows dancing and frightening. And then she comes to a terrible place in the in the path that she's following to her destination to town, loses her step and tumbles over down into the ditch, and she can't get back up. After a time, a white man comes along, a young man, a hunter, with his dog on leash, and he sees her lying there, and he says, "Granny, what are you doing down there?" And she gives this marvelous line, "Just lying on my back like a June bug waiting to be turned over, Mr." and she reached up her hand to be helped. Anything broken, Granny? No, sir, these old dead weeds are springy enough for the job I got to do. On your way home? No, sir, I'm going to town. To town? That's too far. That's as far as I walk when I come out here hunting. You go on home, Granny. I'm bound to go to town, Mr. said Phoenix the time come around. When the man leaves, she finds a little nickel on the ground that apparently had fallen out of his pocket when he stooped to pick her up. She takes the nickel, puts it in her pocket, and moves the rest of the way into town, finally arriving at her destination where she sees the stone building, climbs the pillar of steps until her feet know where to stop. She goes in and is greeted by a nurse there, and the nurse asks her about a grandson who apparently had swallowed lye some two or three years before. Granny Phoenix has made that trip through that perilous journey that I've spared you many of the details of to get the medicine for that little boy, and this is the exchange that they have. She asks Granny, the nurse does, if the boy might be dead, and she replies, No, Missy, he not dead, he just the same. Every little while his throat begin to close up again, and he not able to swallow. He not get his breath, he not able to help himself. So the time come around, and I go on another trip for the soothing medicine. My little grandson, he sit up there in the house all wrapped up by himself, waiting We're the only two left in the world. He suffer, but it don't seem to mark him back at all. He got a sweet look. He going to last. He wear a little patch quilt and he peep out, holding his mouth open like a little bird. Important line. I could tell him from all others in creation. All right, the nurse says, trying to silence her now. She didn't want the story to turn in one of those old people recitations. She gives her the medicine, marks down charity, and then says, It's Christmas time, Phoenix. uh, Could I give you a few pennies from my purse? Phoenix remembers the nickel she found, and she says, Five pennies, make a nickel. All right, five pennies it will be, said the nurse. And Phoenix rose carefully, held out her hand, received the nickel, then fished the other one out of her pocket and laid it beside the new one. She stared at her palm closely, with her head on one side, and then she gave a tap with her cane on the floor. This is what I come to me to do—I going to the store, I going to buy my little child a windmill they sell made out of paper. He's going to find it hard to believe there's such a thing in the world. I'll march myself back there where he is waiting, holding it straight up in my hand. She lifted her free hand and gave a little nod, turned around and walked out of the doctor's office. And then her slow step was heard going down. I love the story of Phoenix Jackson. She was one who knew her duty, who did it in compassion, but who cared about the wants of other people. She was going to buy him a windmill. That's when the real joy came into the whole thing. I think it was Thoreau who wrote about uh, the fact that we didn't need friends to feed us and to clothe us. We had kind neighbors for that. But what we do need is someone who will enrich our soul when we are in need. In the Doctrine and Covenants, in the 59th section, we have been given clear instructions young people. As I've prepared for this uh, season, as well as for my talk this morning, for a rather large uh, event of the Young Women this evening, I have been struck with a mighty fear that I have lived so long without expressing proper gratitude for all that I have, for all that we have, for the places we enjoy while we learn our lessons, for the comforts that come to us when we're stricken with sadness, for the fantastic support that this system gives to us, for the guidance of God and the and the direction and comfort and sustaining influence and witness that is ours of the Holy Spirit. And in the 59th section, in the 88th section, in the 82nd section, all of those references that we might give, we have been commanded to give thanks. We've been told that in nothing does man really offend God, except that we aren't grateful for all the good things of the earth and for all the blessings from heaven, and I toss this out as a very important point in my presentation. We must be grateful, and grateful though we feel at this season. My suggestion this day is that we go forth in gratitude and share some of what we have. One of the things we're conscious of is the fact that in a rapidly growing uh, church—one of our problems is the fact that we're growing so rapidly and across the face of the earth, and this introduces many kinds of of challenges and concerns for all of us—but in a rapidly growing church and with a world with the forces of the adversary lining up for the great battle that is underway—a checkered flag has been dropped, I believe— is that we need a prepared army, honestly, of saints to make a difference with all that we have, with all that we can take advantage of yet to enrich us. You who are particularly in this academic situation, how important it is that we have a prepared army, that we are prepared to make a difference, that we are effective in how we give, that we are successful in our service. Let me give you a quick story to tell you why I'm locked into this attitude. I think it's great to lift up the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees and succor and and enrich people's souls and feed their, their bodies and cover their bodies and so on, but oh my goodness how important it is to come into the company of someone who knows how to do things beautifully, who can meet People's wants. And you may want to look that reference up in Mosiah. Fourth chapter, I think King Benjamin talks about that we should do all of these things, but the very last line, we should deal with people spiritually and temporally according to their wants. Brief story that I learned when I was very young. We were fairly newly married lived in the subdivision with echoes of ourselves all around us, people in the same boat. It was that kind of a community. And they moved into our place a young couple uh, from a small Utah town. They had big dreams. He was going to go to school, she would teach piano lessons and make the money, and they'd move ahead and not be stuck down in some little place where they couldn't progress. But things seldom work out exactly like we plan. Uh, She was always pregnant (laughs) or always playing at funerals or always diapering. He was always doing little odd jobs to get a little more money because she was always having babies and taking care of them. And so his schooling didn't go very fast, and life got away from them. The house got out of control. The children were left pretty much to themselves, and chaos soon took over. She was taken to the hospital desperately ill in a season like this that we're coming into, struggling for her life. No piano lessons now, no money coming in. He had to be gone at least 16 or 17 hours a day trying to get money to keep food on the table. When the word got around into our neighborhood, the sisters moved on it. We were good do-gooders. We were going to help. And I will never forget going into the house and suddenly becoming aware of what people do in a house unattended by the owners. Judgment and criticism, unhappy partners, complaints over the refrigerator, over the organizational structure, over the decor, and it was finally agreed. You see, hearts were opened then in the season of the celebration. Let's change all this. We'll paint it, we'll clean it up, we'll make it wonderful, and when she comes back it will be pleasing." And This family liked every room brightly colored. What happened in this well-meaningness was that the rooms were scraped and scrubbed and painted clinical white, and the kitchen cupboards were rearranged according to a stranger's kitchen habits and pictures were hung at the eye level of the person now who had the hammer, and, worst of all, the children's progress, marks of growth were painted off the wall. The family came back intact. We were surprised when, a few weeks later, they moved from our neighborhood. It was a day of a terrible snowstorm—so thick it fell that everything was whitened, like the clinical rooms. And as the family left, they preceded the moving van and they had crepe paper streamers tied to the handles and the antenna and the decor on the front of the grillwork in the car and they proved they liked color. And they honked all the way down the neighborhood, down the hill, out of our lives. You see, like a deciduous tree at this season, there. Or Christ upon the cross, they had been exposed to the neighborhood and found wanting. Help was necessary, but not complete (laughs) change from what they had established as their lifestyle. I have thought of that often. As a young person, I was enamored of the book uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, written by Dale Carnegie, and I I give him full credit for an idea I've used a lot of times over a lot of years of talking with people about how to get along with each other a little better. He tells about going fishing, and if you're going fishing and you want to catch fish, you take what the fish like to eat, not what you like to eat. A lot of men take six-packs of you-know-what and go fishing. But if you want to catch fish, you take worms. You don't take your favorite food, strawberries and cream, or whatever. You learn how to reach people effectively. You do not paint the rooms white if you find that they are a family who wants their rooms colored. You do unto others as you would like to be done unto, say the scriptures, and I just add a little addendum and hope I won't be struck by lightning. But treat people the way they want to be treated, and the way it will bring them the most joy. As we go forth as a prepared army, with all those people out there waiting for the truth that is ours to share, how wonderful it will be if we have learned how to communicate, learned how to discern where someone is, learned to care enough to want to deal with their wants as well as what we think they need. I have in mind a great spiritual and emotional high in my life, really enjoyed going through the British Gallery of Art. and Jeff, you may have done this when you were there on your mission, but I will never forget how I felt coming around a corner and seeing that familiar uh, painting of Van Gogh's called Sunflowers. I'd seen it on postcards. It had been given to me stamped on stationery. Been, uh, it's been copied in many, many forms, prints to hang on people's walls, but to see it in the original the colors so dazzling, the the details so breathtaking. I was thrilled. and I became an avid fan immediately of anyone who could make the common things of the earth so lovely. In Van Gogh's life story there is an incident that applies to what we're talking about today about being prepared to make a difference in the world as we take all that we have and make it useful to other people. He has not been a very good student. He has been Lacking in direction, he has been a big disappointment to his brother Theo, who is financing the education. And in a confrontation, Vincent says, But I want to paint. I have something inside of me to say I must paint. Don't pin me down. Don't pin me in. I must paint. And his brother says, All right, all right. But learn how to hold the brush. And I think that's great. I I want to be a writer, a great writer. All right, but learn how to spell. You want to be the great doctor. All right, but learn what makes the body tick. You want to do good. Okay, don't go paint people's rooms white when they want them colored. Do you see what it is we're trying to say? In the study of the life of our Savior, our model, our master miracle worker in the lives of people, I have uh, been conscious of something that to me is very significant. It is a great strength to me, if that's worth anything to you, as you look for ideas to help you in your life. As you follow through in the Gospels and even in the Book of Mormon in the third Nephi section where Christ is teaching here on earth, you learn one significant thing. You kind of have to watch for it as you're reading through because the, the recitation of miracles and the, and the marvelous comforts and the um, skill with which he teaches and with which he handles people and so on might hide all of this. Even when it tells about his being baptized, it is there. We come away thinking that uh, God spoke from the heavens about this being his beloved son, about the Holy Ghost descending with the dove at the baptism. There's a little word in there that says, and Christ praying was filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit led him to the wilderness. Every single time, little key highlights in his life, that a great good is accomplished when the apostles are chosen, when a whole series of miracles happen, when uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and the scoffers and the sinners are taken on by Christ. Each of these has been preceded by such phrases as, He withdrew Himself. He went into a certain place. He went to the mountain. He held Himself. Apart, We are set apart. Communing, sometimes the word says, all night long with his Heavenly Father, and when it was day, came forth, and the 5,000 were fed. He walked on water. The storms were quieted. This is the way our Lord Jesus Christ prepared. He came forth from the wilderness with power, of the Spirit, I suggest it's the way it ought to work with us, that we retreat, that we pray, that we follow the guidance of the Spirit, that we go prepared with power to make a difference. One of our nephews wrote a letter home from the mission field. Many of you have filled missions. Many of you are thinking about it. They were in one of these situations where these two young Mormon elders had come up against a very professional scholar of the Bible, one who really knew how to spell um, Haggai, for example, or uh, who knew where to find Lamentations sandwiched all in there in the Old Testament, and all these kinds of obscure things that they can show off with. And they finally had the man convinced that he ought to read the Book of Mormon. And he read the Book of Mormon, and they came back to talk to him about it. And he didn't know what to do. He, he really understood the Bible, but here was this other book that he didn't know what to do with. And as he began to give way to that feeling, confusion took over darkness, depression, And The missionaries decided to give him a blessing. They gave him a powerful blessing, and the feeling lifted. As they were talking about this, a knock came to the door, and two other missionaries from another church that some of you may have tangled with were there. (laughs) They came in, were invited in, and the man excitedly told them about what had happened to him and, you know, what took place. Immediately their rancor was up, and they preached the sermon there is no new revelation and there is no other word but the bible and so on and the whole tone of the thing changed the missionaries kept very quiet they knew when they were being intimidated and then this nephew wrote home and he said suddenly i sat there and i was found myself praying to heavenly father we had a golden prospect there you know someone that we really had in the palm of our hand for the kingdom Why should I be sitting here intimidated as a little warm feeling began to creep in him? We have the truth, they don't. So then he turns his thinking around and prays, Heavenly Father, help me, help me, guide me, do what? And the little warm feeling grew and became a big feeling. And he wrote home and said, I felt the spirit grow within me, and I took courage." He went forth with power of the Spirit. And he spoke said, Why don't we all kneel in prayer? And they did. And before he could pray, one of those other missionaries prayed in a boisterous, um, multiplying-words manner. The Spirit didn't change much. And then this young Comparatively inexperienced Mormon elder who felt the Spirit grow with him and he moved forward, prepared now, took his turn, was a gentle prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving for a prophet today, for an additional witness that Christ is the Redeemer. For gospel, that gives people answers when they need them. The prayer was over. The others quickly left and the investigator made plans to join the church. A prepared army, this is what we need. We need to do what Christ did, brothers and sisters, to learn, as he did in the synagogue, learning and listening and praying. We need to go to the wilderness, to go to the mount, to pull ourselves apart, to really find out what it is we have to work with and Filled with the Spirit as we do it. I grew up in Salt Lake City on Capitol Hill. Many of you know this. But we've been talking about how you get hold of your life and how you prepare. Our house was in the foothills of the big, bald, beehive shaped mountain back of the Capitol. We used to watch it in the winter from our kitchen table where the family ate. We'd watch the skiers make bone patterns down. We'd watch the summer hikers. We'd go up there as a family and as church groups with our lunches squashed down into our sweaters tied around our hips, you know. The day came when I was about your age, a little younger. Maybe I felt I needed to go to the mountain. I needed to be alone. and think lofty thoughts and get my philosophy of life intact and all of that. And I set out and climbed that peak by myself, getting to the top of it and seeing the very interesting perspective of my neighborhood, the places that I walked, the paths I took to church, to school, to the church leaders, to friends, to the little neighborhood store, and all those people who had been in my life. And I realized suddenly, with a new awareness, that— that all that I was I owed to these, especially that little white stucco house scene of my tenderest times and most important learnings, our family home. And I knew I had a debt to pay—seemed like a tremendous debt. I knew I needed to be useful. I knew I needed the help of God. And when I turned to Him, my, my soul filled with an awareness that he lives, that he cares even about a little stringed-out person sitting on the top of a mountain thinking she can make a difference in the world. This week, I was given a gift, unexpected from somebody I haven't seen since those days when I lived on the hill. It's this little ivory sacrament cup I remember taking this sacrament from this cup in the Capitol Hill Ward. It came to me from a woman whose son was part of an elders quorum cleanup project in the old basement storage rooms of that building where I went to church and learned those sacred things that we're trying to apply in our lives. And they were throwing all these things out, and she salvaged one and sent it to me. In my day, as you and yours, you take the cup that you may always remember Him, that you may have His Spirit to be with you. In Matthew 26 and 27 it says, He took the cup, gave thanks, and drank. And this day, I say to you, we may not be able to do what Christ did, We probably won't even be like Phoenix Jackson. But like Van Gogh, we can learn to hold that brush and we can learn to use our skills. And like the Lord Jesus Christ, we can learn how to cultivate the Spirit so that it is there with us, so that we can be as skilled as Carnegie, meeting wants, but with the sensitivity of Christ dealing with the great spiritual needs of people. This is a wonderful season. This is a great joyous time to be alive in the Church when there are temples dedicated to in a valley, when there are marvelous institutions like this, and money enough for young people to come and have their brains awakened and enriched and skills developed and hearts warmed and spirits strengthened. But you're not perfect. I hate to tell you this. You are not perfect. And there is much work that needs to be done, one with another. My prayer always is that I may not be found wanting in a moment of somebody's need, that my cultivation of the Spirit will be effective enough that I can help more than I hurt. I suggest to you that in this season of thanks and giving that our preparations will be so adequate, so beautiful, so Christ-like that we will, in fact, go forth and make a difference. May we prepare to do so is my earnest prayer. And I leave you with my love and my, my prayers for you always my testimony that I can give to you through the power of the Spirit in me, that Christ lives and knows us, that God the Father lives and loves us and wants us back, and that there is great reward, great joy, and great blessing of success will come to us as we prepare ourselves to do the work that is ours to do in the kingdom to help Christ Bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of all of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches Podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.